0: Last time, we looked at the U.S. directly after World War II, and today we're going across the Atlantic to the U.K. The U.K. had one significant advantage in the early days of computing following the war, and that was Bletchley Park and the work they did in code breaking. Advances in data processing, and in particular, electronic computation done particularly for their number crunching to do the cryptanalysis for code breaking led to them having a large, experienced workforce. Not to mention that several members of the UK came over to the US to attend the Moore School lectures, which actually gave them experience and exposure to ENIAC and the work being done at the Moore School at the University of Pennsylvania. One of the key figures was Alan Turing. And Turing came up with a concept called the Turing machine, which was a central processing system. And it's, it's a bit confusing. Here's actually from his personal description. An unlimited memory capacity obtained in the form of an infinite tape marked out into squares, on each of which a symbol could be printed. At any moment, there is one symbol in the machine. It is called the scanned symbol. The machine can alter the scan symbol, and its behavior is in part determined by that symbol. But the symbols on the tape elsewhere do not affect the behavior of the machine. However, the tape can be moved back and forth through the machine, this being one of the elementary operations of the machine. Any symbol on the tape may therefore eventually have an innings. I mean means it gets to be processed. This is a... Very conceptual idea, but versions of it using finite paper tapes have been created, including one at the Computer History Museum. It wasn't necessarily the techniques that were being used by scientists at Bletchley Park, or particularly by Turing, that ended up becoming the British computer industry, but they certainly did help. And hands-on experience, even when it's not directly what leads to the next phase, is always crucial. The first machine that really deserves to be talked about is the Manchester Baby, also sometimes called the Small Scale Experimental Machine, or the SESM, S-S-E-M. This is widely considered to be the first electronic stored program computer, and it was built at the University of Manchester. Manchester had a major part to play in World War II, including developing the bouncing bomb. Many people have said that it is the technological heart of the UK, and they have a point, from the canal systems, to the bouncing bomb, to the computer, to really good music in the 1980s and 90s. The primary builders were three. Jeff Toodle, Thomas Kilburn, and Freddie Williams. I was lucky enough to get to interact with Tom Kilburn before his passing, and a very good gentleman and a very, very smart guy. And he had to be. And it was not intended to be a regular computing engine. And this is something that's important. Often in this phase, the idea wasn't to build a computer you could use every day. This is a major difference in the UK than in the US, but to prove more or less as a proof of concept. And to, you know, if you did some good work with it, that would be a good thing. It was small, which is important, but it could do quite a bit. It had a 32-bit word length and a memory of 32-bit words, so 1K, 1024 bits. It only had two arithmetic operations implemented in the hardware. Addition and subtraction. Everything else was in software. Now, this is important because, again, reduced instruction set, it is a proof of concept. And Kilburn actually wrote the earliest software programs, including one that, and I'm reading here, uh, written for the machine to calculate the highest proper divisor of 2 to the 16th. I'm sorry, of 2 to the 18th by testing every integer from 2 to the 18th downward. That's a big one. <laughs> and it would take a long time to to execute if you were a human, but it could do it itself. Now, division was implemented by repeated subtraction of the divisor, which is not ideal. <laughs> but you could do a fair number of instructions to make that happen. And it took, oddly enough, the baby took three and a half million operations to actually make that happen. And since it was only going at about a thousand instructions a second, that's 35,000 seconds. That's pretty long. The main and most important lasting effect of the Manchester baby was the Williams tube, properly called the Kilburn-Williams tube, or the Williams-Kilburn tube, depending on who you talk to. Freddie Williams and Tom Kilburn developed a form of electronic memory called the Williams tube, or the Williams-Kilburn tube, and it was based on a standard CRT. The way it worked, and again, we'll do an episode all about memory technologies, was it basically, when you hit an electron beam on a spot of phosphorus, it phosphoresces, it glows for a known amount of time. So as long as your uh, beam keeps going and cycles in the amount of time of that phosphorescence, you can actually store a bit on a screen. In essence, you're using a television as a memory device. Again, the Baby was really designed to show that it was a practical storage device, and it was, to a degree. It was large, it was expensive, and it was prone to failure. but not more so than other forms, and they used a 12-inch diameter CRT with a much smaller tube. Uh, It's kind of cool. They had this at the Computer History Museum, and it's awesome. The baby became the Manchester Mark I, and the Mark I was designed to be the used form of the Manchester baby. Now, there's a long history of referring to computers as electronic brains, and in this case it actually raised (laughs) the ire of the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of Manchester, because the debate was there, of course, could a computer be creative, and is that what makes a brain, and so on and so forth. It's not particularly important, but it is interesting that it was noted here. We definitely know of the most famous use of electronic brains being in a book that was published in the US a number of years later. This machine was the celebrity computer of the UK. And it didn't come online until 1949 in June, where almost exactly a year prior, the baby had come on. That's a relatively fast speed for the development of a computer at this point, which is interesting because it proved that having the base of the baby to work off of made it much, much more possible. It was a computing resource for the university and it allowed uh, researchers to gain experience in the practical use of computers which is along with the actual work done the most important thing about having a computer in the late 1940s early 50s the real key to it though is that it was the addition of index registers which made it easier to program so it could go through memory for example and that allowed much, much faster work for the computer itself. This idea actually became patentable, which was always a battle in the computing space about the patentability of various things in design. But they were incorporated into many later machines, including the IBM 701, the Ferranti Mark 1 in particularly. And this is really where the idea of the use of computers in scientific fields as opposed to just mathematic fields really started to take place in in the UK. Now this was a significantly larger or at least more robust machine. And it was also built for two reasons. And the first was actually to do work to actually be used at the UK, at the University of Manchester. But the second was to actually provide a prototype for Ferranti to make their first computer the Ferranti Mark 1. Now, there are various programs that were run on it. The most famous, of course, being uh, the search for Marcin Primes, which was done in April of 1949. And the algorithm was actually written by Max Newman, who was a very important figure in the history of computing and particularly to the mathematics department at the University of Manchester. But the program was written by Kilburn and Tootle, And what's funny is that Alan Turing took on that and actually came up with an optimized version that he called the Marcin Express, which that's a good title, actually. Now, the Mark I uh, continued to work until 1950, so it's a very short run. But it did do some important work, most notably calculations in optics. And a lot of early computers were actually used to figure out lens specifications, which wouldn't be the first thing that would come to mind for me, but very much a major time saver. Because to figure out lenses, for not only for scientific implementation, but even just for glasses, could take a long, long time. At the same time, there was EDSAC. And we mentioned it a little bit earlier. But EDSAC was actually inspired by the first draft of a report on the EDVAC That was done by John von Neumann. The machine was built by Morris Wilkes, one of the true legends in the early history of computing. And the project received backing from J. Lyons & Company Limited, which was a tea company. It actually had a whole bunch of tea in like, crumpets places. It was one of the largest British chains. It was sort of the Starbucks of the time, I guess. And in 1947, work began, but it ran its first program in May of 1949, when it calculated a table of square numbers and a list of prime numbers. That's, that's a big deal. Now, it ran until 1958, so this is one of the longest lasting in use of the machines that came online after, immediately after the war. The follow-on, EDSAC-2, which, much less, lesser known, ran until 1965, using much, much more advanced technologies. But by that point, the UK had really lost its lead in computing technology. I'll get letters about that, I bet. The two important things here, I think, really, were that you had, again, index registers, this time designed by David Wheeler, who I also got to briefly meet... Uh, when he became a fellow of the Computer Museum back years and years ago. But they also, again, were trying out technologies. So one of the things they tried was delay lines. Although a full delay line complement wasn't available until 1956. So nearly to the end of its career. It did also eventually add a tape drive, which never really worked. Things about computers at this point is there weren't always able to solve the problems they tried to solve, but that didn't mean they couldn't do actual work. And machines like EDSAC did a lot of work, but a part of the work was always trying to get to the next step, the next perfected computer method. Now, what's great here, of course, is that it was, again, a limited instruction machine. And it had a relatively small instruction set, only 14 instructions. But it also had a library of subroutines that allowed it to do a lot of things that would normally be instructions, things like division. But you can see with these instructions, things like you had the ones you expect, subtract, add, multiply and add, and, and add, which is, they called collate, Uh, Shift left, arithmetic, shift right, load, multiplier, register, store, accumulator, which is, you know, you clear it maybe, your conditional go-to, your read, input, tape, your print character, round accumulator, which is an interesting idea, a no-op, so just nothing, and then stop for program stops. You can see there, though. What's being done is this machine's entirety is towards a sort of programming that was being done, particularly the go-to conditional. Now, its use was really fascinating because since it had so much computing power for the time able to be used, it could, one, do the thing that every computer tried to do at that point, discover new Mersenne Primes. And even just regular primes. So David Wheeler actually co-discovered a 79-digit prime number using EDSAC. It also was the source of the first scientific paper published using a computer to do the calculations, and that was by Ronald Fisher. I believe that was in 1942, 1952. Three Nobel Prize winners used it. And I believe it might have become the first computer ever mentioned in a Nobel Prize acceptance speech. There's all sorts of things that it was used for, but one that is close to my heart was a program created by Stanley Gill. It was called the Stanley Gill game, and it was a dot which would approach a line, and one of two gates would be opened, and you could go up or down. It was pretty simple, but in a way, it's sort of the first side scroller. The more important one, though, to most folks, is Sandy Douglas's 1952 program, X or O X O, also known as Knots and Crosses or Tic Tac Toe, as we say in the U.S., which used the cathode ray tube to actually play a game of Tic Tac Toe. This was—it's often called the first video game—and I'll do a, a whole, probably three episodes about uh, video games pre-1970. And I'll talk a little bit more about Knots and Crosses. But what's interesting is that this was after the first purpose-built video game computer, which was NIM, and the machine was called NIMROD, for the Festival of Britain. Turing did not fall too far away, though. And the National Physical Laboratory in the early 1950s built the Pilot Ace. And this was a general-purpose store program computer, Again, Alan Turing. And sadly, he actually left NPL before construction was finished. But that happened a lot in those days. You'd have someone start the program and be the main developer, and then they'd go on to do something else. And Turing, in particular, had difficulties keeping positions. And the pilot ace is actually not Turing's full design. So Turing actually, when he left NPL, partly because they weren't doing the ace the way he thought they should, Uh, James Wilkinson, who I did actually get, I think, an email from once, uh, took over the project, but also Donald Davies, or Donald Davis, who, another seminal figure, I believe we mentioned him in the last episode, Mike Woodger, and one of my favorites, Harry Husky, were involved with the design, and actually it ran its first program in May of 1950. Now, this is another example of a machine that was meant to be a prototype that ended up being in great use for a long time. Well, I don't know if I'd say a long time. It was five years, but a very important five years. Now, this was a relatively small machine. It had 800 vacuum tubes. It used mercury delay lines and only had a memory of 128 words, though they later expanded it and then added a drum memory. 4K drum memory, too, in 1954. That's pretty good. It was, not by far, but significantly, the fastest machine in the UK. It ran at 1 MHz. Although it did matter where the bits that they were trying to execute were, or the instructions were on the drum, or the delay line, because seek time actually did Uh, play a factor in that. They actually did a version of it. English Electric did the Deuce. And I know the Computer History Museum still has an English Electric Deuce uh, original drum, but also the Deuce was the first computer ever delivered to Australia. You can still see the pilot ace today. It's actually at the Science Museum in the uh, Making of the Modern World exhibition which is magnificent. It's not only computing, but it's trains, planes, cars, plastics, all sorts of great things. It's Whenever I go to London, I make sure to go to the Science Museum to see it. Now, the commercial version of the Manchester Mark 1, the Ferranti Mark 1, was actually released in 1950. One, it is publicly demonstrated in uh, July of 1951, and it was a few weeks at least before the first sale of the UNIVAC one to the U.S. Census Bureau in the 31st of March 1951, although it didn't come until later. What's really important is that this computer was, again, a move out of the academic world into the business world. And again, the primary design was by Kilburn and Williams, but it was built by Ferranti. And it did add a bunch of stuff, such as uh, it was much bigger in all of its storage and memory technology. It was a, had a faster multiplier and more instructions. The, the, a lot of people say that the history of early computing can be traced by the number of instructions they wanted to add. And eventually they would start to collapse. <laughs> again... William's tube as the initial memory. What's interesting is that the first version was delivered to the University of Manchester, but other groups started to buy it, including the Atomic Energy Research Establishment. That was in 1952. But... They couldn't actually deliver it because a whole bunch of government changes happened so it ended up going to the university of toronto and they were building their own machine but instead they decided oh, you know we could just buy it for thirty thousand dollars and make that happen and it was called ferut f-e-r-u-t and fruit was actually used for various things including the construction of the saint Lawrence seaway Another important machine, largely because it still exists today, is the Harwell computer, or the Harwell Decatron computer, known as the Wolverhampton instrument for teaching computing from Harwell, or the Witch. And its really important thing is that it was restored, and it is now considered the world's oldest working digital computer. Now, it was delivered in the 50s, and it was used until 1973 which, good long run there. It's not a super important machine. It wasn't super widely used, and it really didn't have as much of an effect outside of itself as others, but a few significant names actually did get their hands on a computer first. But what is more important is that it was given to the Museum of Science of Industry in Birmingham But the museum closed in 1997 and it was disassembled and then stored at the Birmingham Museum Collection Center. And you can see it today at the National Museum of Computing in the UK, which is a wonderful group who I support wholeheartedly and hope someday they'll hire me as a consultant. All of this, though, was leading to what most people point to as the first computer used for commercial business applications. The Lions Electronic Office One, or the LEO One. And it was modeled on the EDSAC. Its construction was overseen by uh, Oliver Standingford, Standingford, <laughs> Raymond Thompson, and David Carminer, And they were all from LEO, from Lyons, which was the, again, like I said, the tea company. What's fascinating about the LEO is that it was the first of a series. And eventually it was purchased out by English Electric, which was later bought by ICL, International Computers Limited, and finally by Fujitsu. What's interesting is that Thompson and Standingford actually went to the U.S. to look at new business methods developed during World War II, and they met Herman Goldstein, one of the major figures in the development of ENIAC. They understood immediately how this could be applied to lions. And make things like inventory, routing, all of this could be optimized. And, of course, general bookkeeping. They visited Hartree and Wilkes at the Cambridge and came away with a very high opinion, not only of them as people, but of the technology that they were employing. And they figured, yeah, year, year and a half, they could have one done. And they actually did part of the funding for EDSAC, which allowed them then to have the rights to go and make up their own. And the Leo was a big machine. took up 2,500 square feet. And it was in uh, Hammersmith at Cadby Hall. Now, here's an interesting fact that has been claimed various places that I'm not 100% sure of. That Mary Coombs, who started in 1952 as a programmer on Leo, is considered as the first female commercial programmer. I'm leery of that because some of the women who are working on things like the IBM machines that were available by 1952 may have actually been there. Now, the computer actually ran some simple test programs for the future Queen Elizabeth back in 1951. And they actually came up with an application called Bakery Valuations, which computed the cost of ingredients used in bread and cakes. And that actually came about in in September of 1951, and it actually became the workhorse for that idea in 1951, by November. That's huge. Lions was a gigantic company, and to have that as its principal role is just major. It shows the amount of trust that business was able to place on computers at that point. Because a lot of times people would worry about the adoption of computers because they didn't think they were accurate or they could only do certain limited things. And some of the machines certainly could. They certainly had problems. It wasn't entirely unheard of for uh, an addition of two and two to equal seven. Why? Long story. I was told that by a couple of the early computer pioneers who had worked for IBM in the 50s and their realization that things could end up being output, but because of signals uh, getting crossed, literally, uh, you would have bleed from one signal into another. Uh, The output could just say seven, but the computer itself internally would have it as four. Very interesting thought there. I think one of the things that the UK did was, again, giving that generation who would go on to form companies in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even in the 50s, the first hands-on experience. But you'll notice something here that's very important. The principal designers really boiled down to Williams and Kilburn, Wilkes and Tootle, and Turing with the folks who took over his thing, including Harry Husky. All of them would have long careers, both at universities and working in uh, consultation with various companies. Wilkes, in particular, was an incredibly influential figure. And up until the 90s, I was still talking to people who had said that they had consulted with him on various projects. It's fascinating to see this era of computing, as you see the fold from out of strictly academic and conceptual to the actual commercial applications. You see another phase of this in the U.S., but it's also an idea of standardization. And this will be our next episode. It's going to be on the Institute of Advanced Studies machines, the IAS machines, based off of the von Neumann architecture. That's going to be followed, I think, by the memory technologies one. But then we're going to actually go into a very interesting little phase. We're going to look at five specific machines and their ties and how they led to the future. And these are all machines from 1951 through 1956. So I hope you'll stay tuned. This has been Computer History with Chris Garcia.